This is the Mindful Musical Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Miske. This week, I am excited to welcome the second half of the Fearless Performance team, Dr. Katie Carnaggio. From recording studios to live television, concert hall stages to a canopy of trees overlooking the Pacific Ocean, Dr. Katie Carnaggio has enjoyed performing professionally for audiences across the United States. Katie is creative and managing director of Fearless Performance, coaching performers of all specialties to share the best versions of themselves in performance and to make their best better. A cognitive science researcher, Katie has done work on the psychological, developmental, and neurolinguistic underpinnings of music performance. Her cutting-edge research-grounded methods in practice, preparation, and, and execution were awarded by the Presser Foundation in 2020. Katie has worked with Jeff Nelson over the past four years to create tools to fill the gaps in musicians' training, including online courses, a performance training podcast called Performing Beyond Doubt, and most recently, an innovative online performance academy and lab called Elevate. In this interview, we discuss the path that led her to study cognitive science in relation to musical performance, and why she feels the mental side of performance preparation is so crucial for musicians at all levels. It is immediately clear how passionate Katie is about helping musicians to understand the complex and challenging world of performing. I'm sure you will leave this interview excited to dive into your own performance preparation with some helpful new tools and ideas. So without further ado, here's Katie Carnaccio. Hi, Katie. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear all about um, what you're doing um, with your various projects, of course, but um, I'd love to start with kind of some information about your background and maybe how you got interested in the study of cognitive science and the mental side of performing and music, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, I've always been pretty interested in psychology and cognitive science and, and figuring myself out. Um, I definitely struggled a lot as a, as a kid. Um one of those kids that scored pretty high on tests, but I just couldn't apply myself. So I got a lot of feedback from teachers and parents of, you could be so great. And so I just was really struggling. And so I was always trying to figure myself out. It turns out that it was undiagnosed ADHD, but um, I didn't know that then. So I had been taking classes throughout my undergrad and, and my master's degree and even so had a lot of success, I would say, um, on the horn. It came very naturally to me and I was able to win some regional orchestra auditions and was doing a lot of playing. Um, and yeah, I, I did my master's degree in Baylor at Baylor University. And so I was playing with the Abilene Philharmonic there mm-hmm. and Waco Symphony. And I moved to California and was gigging, gigging up up and down the central coast there. And then it was when I moved, um, I, I wanted to, I, there's still some things I wanted to figure out in my horn playing. There was two specific things I wanted to figure out that I just couldn't quite get was having a very pristine, clear articulation, and then having that really floaty, effortless quality that people can get on the horn. So I wanted to go back to school. I knew I wanted to do some more research and I've always wanted to play professionally and then on the side, just share whatever I find through my research through writing. So I went uh, to doctoral school at IU Jacobs School of Music and studied with Mr. Clevenger. And it was 
amazing to go back to school after having some time uh, just being out in the world. I just remember sitting in my first class. I was with Dr. Kyle Adams, who's a music theory professor, and just basking in how uh, just brilliant he is. You don't get exposed to that when you are gigging and freelancing. There's not time to be thinking about music in this way. It's more about, you know, paying the bills and getting to the next thing. And so I really relish the time to be able to um, focus on music and learn about things in this way. And I don't know, I just felt really grateful and lucky to be there. And my goal going in was... Uh, I wanted to be as good at horn as Mozart was at composing. And so I wanted to sort of crack Mozart's learning code. And that's how it started. Um, very quickly, though, uh, that's not how it continued. I, I ended up changing my embouchure, which was a whole story in itself. Uh, but I got through it. And then I had a, a surgery. My retina detached and I lost um, vision. And in order to recover from the surgery, surgery, I had to take off uh, just about a month off of horn. So I felt like I had figured my way through the embouchure change really well. Um, during that first semester of my doctorate, it was not what I expected it to be. I mean, I expected to go in and be a doctoral player, you know, and just lay everything down. But um, Mr. Clevenger, I changed my embouchure because Mr. Clevenger has the exact ping and the floaty quality I was looking for. So that's what I was able to achieve through the change. But after the surgery and after the time off of the horn, when I came back to it, there was something else going on in my playing. And it just felt so unfamiliar to me at the time. I was really disoriented and I couldn't learn from practice session to practice session. And looking back, I think the best way to describe it would be I was experiencing something called retroactive interference where learning a new skill blocks your ability to recall your old habits. And so learning this new change, I just was sort of subconsciously bringing um, habits from my old setting into my new setting. And having that much time off of it sort of created a disconnect. And so I couldn't access my habits that I always just sort of naturally had that I wasn't even thinking about that I was bringing to the new change. And so it was just a really, really disorienting experience. And I could not figure out my way through it, it was by consulting different horn teachers. It just wasn't happening the way that they expected or I expected. So I was very driven to seek answers through, I, I thought if I could hack my mind, maybe I could figure this out. So I created a an individualized minor in cognitive science that focused on skill acquisition and learned a ton about how we learn and had a lot of motivation to figure out how to how to do that well. So that's where it got started. Wow, what a journey! I can only imagine. Um, yeah, luckily when when I got, I also studied at IU. When I got there, my embouchure happened to align with what Mr. Clevenger felt was appropriate. So I wasn't <laughs> faced with the the scary task of changing embouchures. But I know a lot of students that had to go through that, um, and it's it's I'm, I'm sure challenging to say the least. Um, 
So you talked a lot about like facing these issues and um, trying to figure out kind of what what's going on. And um, and you came to the realization that it was probably something not physical, but more mental, right? Something mental, emotional that is kind of causing these blockages. I'm curious, um, did you notice kind of your the the self-talk element that was happening in here too? Because I know that's a big part of, of these kinds of journeys can be really challenging. Yeah. For this, for me personally, I think that I actually had self-talk that was quite constructive at the time. And that was one of the first areas when I would go into lessons with different people. My self-talk was the place that they went to. They they were thinking, well, if I believed in myself more, mm. if I, if I, I don't know, if I was kinder to myself, um, then maybe I could, f-. they thought that that was the issue. Yeah. And for me, I felt like I knew I could do it because I had done it in the past. I knew what yeah. I was capable of and I knew it was in my mind, but I just, I just wanted to learn the skill. I just, I wanted to take the emotion out of it and just focus in on the skill. So it wasn't until this, my experience working through my this this shift after my surgery took several years. It wasn't until after I graduated that I found my way through that change. And I feel very solid now. And um, near the end of that, with so many people sort of telling me, oh, you need to believe in yourself more. You have to imagine that you're a principal player, that you can do it. I started to internalize those messages that I was receiving, thinking like, oh yeah, maybe there is something wrong with me and the way that I'm thinking. So at the end of it, I really had to focus a lot on my self-talk. And even now, in other ways, I'm noticing that judgment comes up so much in the way that we describe ourselves in the practice room. And it's mm-hmm. such a huge block that we and it, it creates all sorts of emotions that we carry into performance. And so, yeah, just earlier today, I um, had a lesson with my teacher, Katie Woolley, and we were talking about just getting a sense of, well, how do I feel going into this practice session? What's on my mind? And so I said the word, I'm feeling pretty unfocused. And she she used the language, oh, I'm just tripping ahead of myself. And I thought that that was really interesting because unfocused is a very judgmental term. Tripping ahead of myself is a much more precise term, and there's not necessarily anything good or bad about it. It's just what is happening. And then therefore you can react to that. So I'm still exploring little ways like that, but yeah, self-talk was not a big block in my learning. It was more so learning how to, I didn't have words to express how I was communicating. And I also was not advocating for myself. I just believed the people around me were so much more experienced. And of course, I'm going to do what they say to do, not what I think right. I should do. So yeah, I wasn't sticking up for what my intuition was telling me. Yeah. The judgment piece too, that you mentioned about kind of even even now after all of your work and all of your time spent focusing so much on that and other aspects of kind of your 
your um, individual approaches in the practice room and like how we're talking to ourselves, how we're coaching ourselves. Like even now, it's a good reminder to everybody that like even you with someone that spends so much time on this can still trip themselves up with like self-judgment type talk, even if you don't realize it. Yes. Yep. And it's something I definitely obsess over. And then I'm always surprised when I notice it in myself, but it's just a lifelong journey. And part of our experience, the way that we teach ourselves, the way that we show up to performances, it's also influenced by our environment as well, the people around us, how they're talking. And so what seems very natural can still be something that's kind of has a destructive impact on our learning and growth and ability to show up. So yeah, it's something I think that everybody should be, could be paying attention to. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you mentioned before we started recording today that you have some some practices that you would consider at least mindfulness-based, and I'd love to hear some examples of those. It might help us to shed some light on how, or some good ideas for people on how to um to get our brains kind of in tune to notice those types of, of possible self-judgment um, phrases that we might be, might be easier to acknowledge when we're a little bit more present. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing that I do is it's not a mindfulness meditation of any sorts. It's very physical. Um, but I love doing this. My first session of the day is sort of a, a physical it's not even a body warm up. It's just a series of actions that I go through in order to connect myself to my body. I feel like with just the way, I don't know if it's the culture or just the way my mind is, my mind can be just somewhere completely different than my body. So I always need to have that time to ease into the practice session and transition into a state of focus. And I do that through a physical warm up. So just starting with neck rolls um, and just noticing where do I feel tension and just actively slowing time down. Um, again, my mind's just always racing forward to the next thing. So really having, I really need to be intentional about slowing my mind down. And I just notice where I'm feeling tension, whether I'm breathing openly and just sort of noticing my shoulders, especially harnessed the way that our instrument is, our French or what? What is my left hand? Is my shoulders kind of forward, and then my right shoulder is a little bit backward. So I'm sort of balancing out that tension and connecting to that, and starting to breathe very openly. And it's just this transition of stretches, and then arm circles, and breathing exercises, counting my breaths, and feeling where is my body catching and sort of anticipating, well, how does that sound on the instrument? That's not going to work. That's not what I want to bring to the instrument. So I'm always getting what I want to happen on the horn in my body and in my mind first and being very intentional. And it's, um, it can take 15 to 20 minutes to do this kind of exercise, but as I work my way through it, um, and I'm working on lengthening and widening and getting my lungs working very openly, getting the breath and the air spinning. As I work through that, my first note on the horn always surprises me because it's just this beautiful ring to it that if I don't do this exercise, it, it usually would have taken me weeks to 
sort of cultivate and practice that out of my horn. But if I'm getting that in my body and in my mind first, and then just taking every all of that, where it's so much easier to do, and bringing that to the instrument, it just happens instantly. So that's one sort of mindfulness thing that I, I do every day. Um, for performance, though, uh, there's this, I have to, I meant to look this up. There's a meditation pack on headspace for sports. And I think it's a concentration course that you can go through. But basically, what it does, it takes you through, you can decide whether it's a 10 minute meditation or a 15 minute meditation. It teaches you to pick something that you'll experience in performance. So I pick my feeling my feet on the floor. So whether I'm sitting or standing, I will always feel my feet on the floor. And so I become aware of that sensation. And through this progression of meditation and practice and focus, you train yourself to get to the point where the moment you are aware of your feet on the floor, you can channel that very focused, ready state, kind of like like a cat who's just like, the cats are very cute, Um, (laughs) but they are very murderous as well. (laughs) I I have this bird feeder right outside my window. And so my very cute cats, just one minute are just adorable. And the next minute they're like primed and ready and laser focused on that bird. And they're ready to pounce whichever way. So that's sort of the state of readiness that I want to be in performance. And through this meditation, you can kind of train yourself to just instantly lock into that state. So that's another thing that I do. Great. Yeah, the um, your body warm-up, if you will, or body focusing exercise, um, I liked how you frame that as what uh, what you're focusing on while you're doing each of those different um, you know exercises or movements, however you want to uh, define it. Um, you're just noticing what's there and you're and you're kind of feeling your body and you're you're leaning your body toward what you want it to feel like when you're playing the horn well. And, and at the same time, you're also at the same time, like working on your focus at the, like kind of getting your mind engaged because you're like paying attention intentionally (laughs) to different spots in your body. And then as a result, when you start playing on the horn, it's already, it's like you've been practicing for an hour already. Like you're like locked in, you know what I mean? And I think that's so important because so many people like, you know, I, I teach at a university, you know, and so I, I see uh, students like run into the practice room and like slam the door and get their horn out or instrument out and just start playing immediately and just like fiddling around and uh, and then, you know, missing notes or playing out of tune or whatever, just making sounds rather than like intentional playing. And then like maybe after 20 minutes, then they'll start settling in and then they'll start playing. Right. But mm-hmm. in those 20 minutes, you're building habits on your horn or your instrument that aren't really what you want to be building. So I love that idea about really kind of setting intention, both physically and mentally, um, before you start playing, um, getting the mind right first, right? Getting Because really, where our, where our successful playing comes from is our mind, right? The muscles are there, the muscle memory, you know, at, at a certain point, we've got enough muscle memory in our face that we don't really need to worry about it. <laughs> And so just getting the mind where it needs to be is so crucial. That's great. Yeah. And that aligns with what happens physiologically too in our brains. It's been a little while since I've read up on this, but it takes time for 
the neurochemicals in your brain to become activated. I think we have this expectation that we should just be able to just sit and focus and do what we intend to do. But it does take a small amount of time at least for those to align and become act- activated. I love Andrew, Andrew Huberman's podcast. He talks about focus a lot and he can explain way better than I can about the process. But what we experience uh, when we sit down to practice, it's not because we are, I don't know, unfocused or we just don't have the discipline. It's just the natural progression of warming up your mind to the task at hand. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think recognizing that and being okay with that is a really important thing. So it's good, good reminders for everybody, mm-hmm. um, whether they hear it for the first time or the hundredth time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you, you mentioned you had maybe some interesting questions that, that um, you could pose to me um, earlier on when we were discussing that. Is there anything that we could flip the script a little bit, <laughs> mm-hmm. change, change positions for a minute? Well, yeah, I was really curious because you also had a very, what I would say, a successful career before you got into mindfulness. And so what have you noticed? First of all, what do you do? What does mindfulness actually look like for you in your daily practice? And then how has that impacted your development? For me, my daily practice varies wildly, especially <laughs> now that I have a two and a half year old. Um, the concept of scheduling uh, is, is much more flexible me than it ever has been and that's that's great it's part of life and but i have to i have to realize that sometimes if i try to sit down and meditate he's going to break down the door and come and like jump on me (laughs) so then it's like okay i guess this meditation practice is over for now um but generally speaking you know like 10 to 20 minutes of of um of intentional um formal practice is what i call it something where you're sitting or laying down um and like being really intentional about a certain exercise and my default is usually something on just breath awareness. So like following the breath in, following the breath out, counting the breaths, noting whatever I need to do that day. Um, sometimes interspersed with like body scan stuff, noticing, like you were saying for your warm up, kind of just noticing tensions in my body or noticing sensations and kind of moving my focus around that way. Um, those are kind of my go to's. And then I also really like um, if I'm going to do like a guided meditation, um, I'd use the 10% Happier app um, by Dan Harris, former ABC News anchor, um, turned meditation teacher and interviewer. Um, but uh, he's got a bunch of really good recorded meditations on his um, program from really well-known teachers around the world. Um, and they do some really great stuff on gratitude practices and on self-kindness um, self-compassion exercises as well. So I'll, I'll do those as well, especially when I'm leading up towards a bigger performance or something, I'll kind of shift my practice more towards those kinds of guided meditations to help me to stay more present in whatever I'm doing with my exercises and, and try to take that into my prep as well. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you know, what I've noticed the most is that I'm much more forgiving of myself. I'm much less critical and I'm more curious when things happen. So like if I'm, you know, practicing just on my own and and I miss a note or I screw something up (laughs) badly, I'm like, Hmm, that was interesting. I wonder what happened there. Like what, what, what caused that, you know, to be different than the last time I played it, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's a much softer, more 
even analysis of something rather than judgmental. And we've talked about judgment already a little bit today, mm -hmm. but I think that's the key piece for me that mindfulness has helped. It's two two things is judgment, help working on um, retraining myself so it's not judgmental reactions, it's just analytical. Um, and then the other part is focus. So uh, and awareness more broadly. So being aware of what I'm focusing on in the moment and like where my thoughts are drifting away, I need to bring them back while I'm meditating, of course, but really the result is that when I'm performing or practicing, that when I notice my thoughts drifting somewhere, um, either unhelpful or just benign, like I don't really need to be thinking about like a grocery list while I'm trying to like <laughs> transpose to E flat horn or something in the middle of a concert. Like that's not a helpful thought. So it's much easier to like let those kinds of thoughts go and come back to where I'm I'm focusing on and then to do so non-judgmentally as well. So those are kind of the two big things for me that have impacted my life generally, but specifically my music as well. Yeah. Amazing. I think right now what I'm, ex what I'm sort of playing around with is awareness, but not just awareness of what I'm doing, but expanding my awareness of what there is to be aware of, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, as I'm exploring a line, really getting to know and playing around with the in-betweens of notes and directions and the vibrations and hearing it come out of the walls and hearing the energy through it or different overtones and colors. And I feel like there's just a deeper and deeper world for me to become more aware of. And so that's why I think that mindfulness is so important in our ability to learn and become those really exceptional musicians who can just, ugh, when they play, it sounds like, I don't know, you're on a different planet. Yeah. And I feel like in a way they kind of are on a different planet. They're seeing and hearing little tiny details that I don't yet even know to think of. And I feel like I'm still expanding. I've, I've come a long way in this area, but I guess like that's the magic of being a musician is that it's just the exploration is endless. So yeah, that's what I'm really focusing on right now. And, and I was thinking too, when we become bored with that process and we're just working on replicating the things that we've done in the practice room, but now on stage or now in a what we might consider a higher pressure situation. I think that that's when there's a lot of room for nerves and self-doubt and awareness of things that are unhelpful, like the, the judge's pencil scribbling on the paper and just imagining what they're thinking or what they're writing. Yeah. So yeah, just training ourselves what to be aware of in performance, just knowing, bringing your habits into performance, but also developing a sense of flexibility and play and exploration, even in a situation like that. It feels very vulnerable, but I know when I'm able to do that, that's, that's just my, those are my best moments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the idea of, of the awareness piece, right? So when you're practicing and, and working on expanding your awareness and then when it comes to performance and how that can change, and how all of a sudden we're maybe aware of way more things than we were before. You know, part of, as you well know, um, 
from sure from personal experience and from and from research but like our our bodies and minds do change when we're in a performance situation like things are different like typically we're we're more like like um like our level of arousal is much higher in terms of the like psychological and physiological arousal definition where like our pupils are dilated and like our our heartbeat is running faster and like you know like we have you know more oxygen coming in because we're our, like we're beating you know we're breathing a little heavier maybe and things like that and so it makes sense that our awareness goes up too and with that like the possibility for the mental kind of analysis of that awareness mm-hmm. kind of creeps in as well is that my in the ballpark there yeah, well, I think that that's something that we experience a lot with our clients in fearless performance when they come to us. They, they're what they want to happen is that they will feel like they do on stage the same way that they do in the practice room. But I don't think that we will ever get to that point. And I think if you do get to that point, that um, I don't know. I, I I think I would personally be very bored if that's the way, the way that it played out for me. It's just you are in a different performing situation for all the reasons that you've mentioned and more. And it's a matter of accepting the fear and or activation is what I like to use, activation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't like to use excitement because when I'm excited, my again, my mind is all over the place and my it's just bouncing off the wall. So I like to be activated. <laughs> <laughs> um, but becoming comfortable with that and using it, learning how to channel it, learning to notice those sensations that we notice. Oh, my heart, for me personally, my, my heart, starts pounding really quickly. And before I had trained myself how to deal with it, I would feel my heart pounding and then I would get scared about my heart pounding because I knew, okay, well now I'm not going to be able to play as well. And so I try to get the heart pounding to stop. Meanwhile, my focus is much better served if I'm focusing on what do I want to do with the music? What do I want to do with my process and moving mm-hmm. deeper into that? So becoming so mentally strong and committed and elevating the music above any physical sensation. And that's something that I practice too in the practice room. Um, I just started bumping up my practice and I'm very aware that my lips feel kind of raw Um, and not in a bad way, but just a extra tired way. But in the practice room, I can already be training myself to be so single-mindedly focused on the line or the undertones or the spin or whatever image I'm thinking of to the exclusion of noticing. Like that's what I'm practicing in the practice room. And so that's what we're training people in fearless performance to do as well, to be just so committed to your story and know that it's okay that your heart is pounding, that it will give you extra energy. And this is a good thing. It can be a good thing. We It turns out to be a negative thing when we um, don't know how to cope with it. And we have people, coaches, teachers around us, colleagues, or even students that can sort of exacerbate, exacerbate that cycle of fear and make it harder. But it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> so right. I, I think mindfulness is the way through it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I feel like um, this is actually a, like a, a Dan Harris 
um, pseudo quote, but he likes to say that mindfulness is like the like the baseline superpower that kind of makes everything easier. <laughs> so like whatever whatever thing you're working on, if you're more aware of what your mind is doing and you're more able to non-judgmentally let go of unhelpful thoughts or just or just notice when things are not helpful that are going through your mind, like it's going to make everything easier, whatever you're trying to accomplish easier. And I, I totally agree. Um, you mentioned um, a little bit about uh, fearless performance. Um, and our, our, mo our most recent guest before you was Jeff Nelson, your partner in that. And um, so we heard a little bit about fearless performance, but I'd love to hear more about um, why you really see that the crucial element of practicing performing and getting more experience performing as, as kind of the, the magic key to help us figure out all these different things we've been talking about and how you're kind of um, facilitating that through your clients and Elevate in your online program as well. Mm -hmm. So the research is pretty clear and it suggests that incorporating performance into your practice early on um, allows you to become more comfortable with performance. It also enhances your ability as well. If I have something on the calendar, if I know I'm going to be playing for somebody, I make sure to use my time more wisely in the practice room. And just getting feedback from other people, hearing um, their perspective is really, really important. I think that we hear our sound at our bell or whatever it is that you're playing. Um, we don't hear the sound as it travels across a, a hall, a concert hall. So that's a just, we're never going to be able to know how we sound. And so we need that feedback. But I think that oh, there's a couple, there's so many, sorry, my mind's going five different directions. It's okay. You're, you're activated, <laughs> extra activated. I'm activated. <laughs> I mean, this is me excited. Uh, okay. Um, I think, well, number one, I think it's really important to incorporate performance early on in your training because it shows that you accept who you are no matter what your current ability is. I think we have a habit as musicians to judge the quality or the value, let's say the value of our music making based on how well we can play that day or how much we've worked up a piece of music that it's not worth hearing until it gets to a certain point. But we've all heard students or, um, I don't know, players of all kinds share um, music in master classes or in lessons. And there's always something that you can learn from somebody's playing. There's always something that you can appreciate. There's always value in it. And I think that when we say, I'm not ready to play this for somebody yet, that's another subtle way that we're judging ourselves and we're showing that we're ashamed of, of what we have to offer. That I think that we can start in the name of learning. <laughs> of course, you don't want to be playing for certain people. You want to be careful who you're performing when you're performing early on in your learning. But for the sake of learning, it is so important to be sharing and be open and okay where, with where you are in your learning. I think that was a big reason why my embouchure change issue after the surgery took so long is that I was so, so ashamed of my playing and so, uh, I guess, doubtful of my intuition and over trusting 
just one or two people during that time. But if I was more open, if I was reaching out to more people, if I noticed the, looking back now, I can see that there's a couple of people in my studio who were extending an olive branch and they could have been somebody that I confided in and bounced ideas off of, but I was just too much in my own shame and pain of it to reach out. But there's somebody who's been through, been where you are and they found their way through it. And when you start talking and normalizing that we're all learning, we're all growing, we're all developing, there's exploration, bouncing ideas off of each other. That's a really beautiful and magical thing. So that's one reason, (laughs) one reason of all the many to start performing earlier. Um, And then having safe spaces to perform gives you an experimental ground because like you said our our bodies will react in different ways in performance and we need a space to be able to experiment with how to manage those those symptoms and sensations that we experience and we need to be able to do it in a, a way where we can fail like in the practice room, you can try out all different kinds of ways of playing a phrase. You can even lean into your mistakes to learn more about why something is happening. We need that same ability to do that in performance. And so those are the two big reasons why we created Elevate is to give people that arena, that that laboratory to explore how they react in performance, what choices they make in performance and how they can start trying out different things. Well, maybe if I add this marking to my music, it will help me focus in this moment. Or maybe if I make sure that I, there's somebody, I'm not going to say who it is, but they on stage feel like they lose a sense of gravity And this is somebody who also feels a lot of pressure to wear high heels on stage. Mm. And so they feel like they're just that coupled with the heels. It just just does them in. And so it was a simple matter of switching out what shoes they wear. And they're just as dressy and just as beautiful. But now they can feel a little bit more grounded on stage. And then having experiences – performing more grounded, they can then work their way up to getting the confidence to be able to wear heels on stage. Yeah. That yeah. was something, uh, my, so my wife's a violinist and when she was also at Indiana, it was around the same time I was, um, and working in a private capacity with Brenda Brenner on, on, uh, violin performance. And Brenda was like, no heels period. End <laughs> of statement. I, she's like, I never wear heels when I perform. I don't let any of my students wear heels because of that reason, right? Because you like you, it's so nice to feel grounded and feel connected and feel like low because so often when we're performing, we kind of get floaty. Like you said, mm-hmm. like we kind of lose that grounding sensation. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I concur with that, with that approach. I'm glad that that worked. And Um, the thing is, you're not going to know that that's how you react until you're in performance and wearing heels. And you don't want that to be the time where you're performing a concerto with an orchestra. You don't want that to be the first time that you have experienced that. So that's the the other reason for the lab. You know, so I'm a member of Elevate. I I perform in there fairly often. And um, one thing I've noticed that's really interesting is oftentimes when I'm performing for someone on Elevate, I'm sitting... I'm in the same room where I practice most of the time. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think for most people in that situation, that's kind of how it has, tends to happen. Just like you're set up in your practice room and that's where you have your open up your computer or whatever. And then you share your performance. And even even that, it still makes it feel different. So like <laughs> even even though I'm in the same room, I'm playing the same instrument, you know, I'm in the same clothes that I was five minutes before. As soon as like it's like, OK, go. It feels different. And it's so it's so nice to be able to to understand and get a deeper knowledge about how my body reacts physically and how my mind reacts when I am performing. Yeah, it really is interesting. And especially if you look at it the way that you've been talking about where it's exploratory and it's it's not judgmental at all. It's just like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why my like thoughts go there in this section or, oh, that spot that I was working on forever didn't go well in my performance. I wonder why. I wonder what I was doing in my practice sessions that was influencing the way that this turned out in performance. And like, it really starts to connect you more deeply with the mental side of your practicing preparation, like just as much so that when it's kind of like looking in the mirror more, more in detail when you walk on stage to perform. And then, like you said, having that safe space, that supportive environment is super, super helpful. Mm hmm. Well, I think we, well, we definitely cultivate that kind of listening and elevate. Everybody knows there that we are allowing ourselves to push ourselves in this way. We're allowing ourselves to try things out and fail (laughs) incredibly. And so we're listening with different ears and elevate. But even if you're not a part of our studio, I think it's really important to find at least a few people in your life that you can be that vulnerable with. Um, The other thing that you mentioned, though, I, I wonder I listened to Jeff's interview, but I can't remember if he said this, but he would say, if you are sitting in your practice room and then you are everything, you're doing everything that you usually do, but now you've come up on our performance arena and you're performing for somebody there. The only difference is that there's somebody else in the room. He would say that you are it's the only thing that's changed is your choices. What Mm -hmm. choices are you making because somebody else is there? I think that's really useful for him and for a lot of people. He likes to imagine there's just a bubble around him when he's playing. And so he can Mm -hmm. focus on making um, similar choices that he would make in the practice room. He's able to, you know, kind of block them out for other people. Um, I, at least for me, I really like to acknowledge that the change, that there is somebody there and that how can I use that as a positive thing and, and something to fuel my energy? Um, how can I, there's a lot of, some of the work that I did in my doctorate was in embodied cognition. And it's really amazing when you're at a concert and everybody has fixed attention at a single point and there's some studies that they track their heart rate and people's hearts start beating together. And there's just like this magical synergy that happens in performance. That's just still unmeasurable (laughs) and still in some ways indescribable. But when you have that audience come together with the performer, there's something so much greater that can happen with that, that, that energy and that communication. I think that the audience is communicating with me as much as I do them. And I love to think about the audition panel, though, if I'm taking an audition 
and I'm imagining the horn section behind that panel. I just love thinking about them and imagining that I'm blending with them and how can I be a team player um, as I'm performing these excerpts. So yeah, I mean, there's two different ways and you also don't know which way works for you unless you're doing a lot of performing too. Right. That's no something I've noticed is that um, I for a long time I was really focused on everybody else and I wasn't thinking about myself when I was performing and that was causing some major challenges when I would make that switch to performance and so I've ex- I've been experimenting with the other way the more Jeff way of the bubble concept mm-hmm. where it's like everything I'm doing in performance I'm doing for me because I love it like I'm making great music because I love it I'm playing it this way because I love it you know even if it's something that the conductor told me to do right it's still like I'm doing it because I love this music and I love you know whatever and that's it's been interesting I I think that's more of the way that I need to be and then slowly I think I can expand my bubble because I I like the idea of being really connected to my audience and like really you know trading energy during that performance but I I think for me anyway, and in, in my current level of exploration, it's going to be more like more, a little bit more centered for me <laughs> for now mm-hmm. anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think that there is necessarily a, 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 one way or the other way to do it. I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening that have a third or fourth or fifth way right. that they go about it. But the main thing is that we're focusing on creating an incredible musical experience and if that means that you go into your bubble and you are focused on your process and the music and your plan and and whatever it is then that's awesome (laughs) um and i think that yeah i don't know i think that we just have to find our own path forward as musicians we are very very all very unique we have our own process our own path there's no one way to practice there's no one way to perform and it can be our method of performance can be as artistic as our interpretation of the pieces that we're playing yeah i couldn't agree more and um that was a beautiful and elegant way and <laughs> to kind of cap this lovely conversation, I think, for today. Because knowing um, both of our passions for these topics, I think we could probably go for hours. So um, <laughs> before we become like, you know, the the multi-part <laughs> novel of, of podcasting, let's um, I'd love to hear just a little bit more um, if people are interested in what you're doing uh, with Fearless Performance and Elevate, if uh, where they can reach out and contact you um, and where they can follow um, you guys on social media, all that kind of stuff, if oh, you'd like yeah. to share that. So you can find us, our social media of choice is Instagram. You can find us at fearless underscore performance. We also have a website, fearless-performance.com, and that's where you can find all of our programs. We have some online courses. Some of them are free. Um, and then that's where you'll also find information about Elevate, Um, which is our monthly performance training network where we bring in a guest faculty to do live masterclasses every month. And we have a performance arena and live classes. We have one tonight that I actually need to prepare for. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's a great group of people, incredible musicians, and it is that safe space. So you can find everything at fearless-performance.com. Great. Thank you so much, Katie, for your time. Um, this has been fantastic, and I'm sure we can come up with lots of more, lot, lot, lot more uh, topics to discuss on future episodes. So yeah. I, I'll look forward to having you back at some point. 
Thank you so much, Kevin. This was a great conversation. Another big thank you to Katie for a great conversation. And thank you all so much for listening. You can keep up to date on all new podcast releases and other exciting news by following me on Instagram at Mindful Musical Life or by visiting the website, mindfulmusicallife.com. If you have a suggestion for a future topic or guest, please reach out. I'd love to hear your ideas. Remember, anyone who might be interested in mindfulness coaching can reach out via Instagram or my website to schedule a free 30-minute consultation. And lastly, if you like the podcast, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.